and, and there's some level of, of, um, <laughs> denial, honestly, like this lack of real awareness and it's not conscious denial always, but, but really just the self-awareness and the knowledge of our own capacities and our own limits. And that those are actually okay to have. Hello and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? The Decoding Behavior Summit takes place from February 11th to the 13th, and I'm a part of it. Join me and many other luminaries in the field to discover what your child's behavior is really telling you. Explore ways to protect and strengthen your relationship with your kid, and learn ways to improve behavior that are grounded in neuroscience and compassion, all while honoring the neurodivergence of your child. Once again, the summit takes place February 11th to the 13th, and you'll find that link in the show notes. And of course, check out our partner podcasts, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb, ADHD Diversified with MJ, and the ADHD Friendly Lifestyle with Moira Mabin. Don't forget to join all of us for a live Q&A Tuesday, February 8th at 1.30 Eastern. Go to ADHDrewired.com events to register. If you value this show, if you get useful, applicable information from it, a great way to support us is by providing a rating and review in iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. It helps others find the show through that wild algorithm magic. And of course, this episode, like so many others, was edited by Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. I am glad to have him on the team. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, we are talking to Renee Crook. Renee is a veteran ADHD coach who works with adult clients both one-on-one and in groups. She sits on the board of directors for ADA and is the chair of their virtual support groups. She also teaches for Renify, a financial education program for ADHDers, which we have a previous episode on. And she trains coaches as part of the faculty for the ADHD Coach Academy. In this episode, Renee shares her story and discusses how her struggles with ADHD led to her leaving teaching and becoming an ADHD coach. Along the way, we discuss why clear expectations matter so much, how struggles with prioritization can affect performance, the importance of standing up for ourselves, why ADHDers so often take on too much, the power of planting seeds, and the healing power of helping others. All right, let's get rolling. So uh, in my previous life, like as I call it, I've, I've rebooted my life a number of uh, three times now, but the, the first iteration was uh, as an elementary school teacher and what I had intended to always be. Uh, didn't know that I had ADHD and didn't get diagnosed until about year 10 or 11 of 13 and teaching. 
I was going through a lot of challenges in my life at that time and um, going through a divorce and having troubles at work and then having all this other stuff and my world sort of falling apart and not knowing why. And um, in that process got to diagnosed, there's a lot of, of other parts to this, but really learning to support my students um, and uh, trying to help their families and uh, understand the students that I had with ADHD and just feeling drawn to the students in the school that were struggling with this and feeling like not knowing yet why, but that I understood them in a way that other people seem to not <laughs> understand them. And I would end up with a indiscriminately large percentage of students with challenges in my classroom and couldn't figure out why I kept, you know, getting these large groups of children that were really challenged in certain ways that other teachers didn't seem to have as many of those students. <laughs> and it turned out that it was really like, well, Renee works really well with these kids, so let's just give them to her and uh, not necessarily fair or reasonable, but sort of flattering at the same time. Um, so I think that was part of um, my work started and where the pieces came together for me was actually supporting and researching and learning how to support my students. Our training for teachers is woefully inadequate on ADHD and uh, almost non-existent, to be honest, it was at the time. I wasn't getting it. I didn't have it. So I needed to find it. So I did a lot of, went to a lot of conferences and workshops and things like that, and just reading and learning so I could better support my students and their parents because they were really confused and struggling as well. So that's kind of how I ended up connecting the dots was that, you know, from these workshops that I'd been going to as a teacher, started to hear other ways that ADHD was described that previously I'd never resonated with because I have primarily an attentive ADHD and didn't resonate with the bouncing, you know, boy and the falling out of this chair in the classroom and the descriptions of, you know, willful dis, you know, disobedience and kind of, you know, the naughty descriptions that were so connected to children with ADHD that were really struggling. And I just knew that there was more to it, but never really had a great description that matched. So anyway, so I found that process in my own journey of getting diagnosed and struggling that I really was becoming very sick. I was very physically sick. I was emotionally uh, sick and, and overwhelmed because I was working so many hours and spending, this is a part, one of the pieces that I'm, uh, have struggled so much with. And I, I laugh about it now, kind of, um, but there's still some shame around it that I was in the classroom, you know, so late every night that the lights in the whole school would go off. They were on timers. I've done that. Yep. Yeah. So there, and the parking lot lights would then go out several hours after that. And so I can't tell you the number of times that I was there after our nighttime custodian had gone home for the night and the lights were going off. And wow. <laughs> I don't think I got there that late, but I definitely had the rest of the school is dark and I'm still in the building. Yeah. So having to use a flashlight to get to my car, you know, that kind of thing. And, and just, really out of balance. I was just trying to keep my head above water, spending all this time in the classroom, not having time at home and having energy for anything else. And it just, everything was so out of balance, but I was really struggling to keep things afloat. How much of that was actually behind or actually struggling to keep up? How much of that was perfectionism and how much of that was sort of close to perfectionism, but that idea of like feeling like you have to try to prove yourself and prove your commitment. I think it was all of the above, um, honestly, because 
I was, I mean, my desk was piled with papers and, you know, things I had printed and hours of research on lesson planning and having to reinvent, feeling like I needed to reinvent the wheel, that I couldn't possibly teach the lesson the same way that I taught it last time. And that I had to dig deeper and do more and, and improve, you know, do everything to engage every single student, all the ways that I felt like I needed to, and to be able to prove to myself, but also I didn't know this, but also kind of proving to my colleagues and to my principal that I, I was doing a good job. And so I think it was that piece. So letting go of knowing what was good enough, the perfectionism component of that, that helped me seeking better, more other stuff and not being able to just be like, this is enough. Like this is going to get the point across to the kids. This will be, this will be good enough. And then also not prioritizing the right things. So spending so much time on that, on the perfect lesson plan with the perfect activity, that's really going to get them engaged that I hadn't finished grading the assignment from the day before, or hadn't put the grades into the, you know, into my system yet, or responded to a parent email or, you know, answered a phone call or done some of those basic logistical things because I kept prioritizing the things that maybe weren't the biggest priority (laughs) because of these other things that I didn't know were driving that behavior or, um, yeah, just, just the new, new thing and the more knowing more and doing more. And that was part of feeding that. As a guy who used to teach and had, I think, similar struggles to you, this is absolutely resonating with me. I'm sure it's resonating with some audience members as well. I can actually, as you were describing that, I could feel my heart rate increase and start pounding harder. I'm all flushed yeah. and heart rate is like high right now. Just yeah, I can tell. Yes. I want to kind of honor that, that normal biological response to anxiety, even in memory. Yeah. For both of us, as you tell this story, because it's so hard. It, it, and especially when one, one of the things that amazes me about education is that they're like, Make sure the kids know what you expect of them, right? Like show them samples of work that kids have done in the past, give them a rubric, give them a scoring guide, all this stuff. And then often for teachers, that doesn't trickle up. Like teachers don't get a clear indication of what is expected of them. And the logic stands that if kids who are learning and trying to perform in a classroom need to have a clear understanding of what is expected of them. So too do employees, whether it's teachers or office workers or, or doctors, they, we all need to know what's expected of us. I don't know why that hasn't gone into the professional world as much as it should. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense too, because I think the fear also of, of, you know, for, for me that got fed was not knowing or seeing inconsistent expectations. Um, And for me in that the journey up to that point, I had had some pretty negative experiences and it had always been challenging. So from the very beginning, um, creating, having to create our own curriculum the first couple of years um, that I, that I was a teacher. And so there wasn't a lot of framework to start with even. So, you know, they were like, well, you know, our training said, well, just, you know, stick with the curriculum. And then as you get more comfortable, explore, you know, explore beyond it and then get creative and add other things. Well, we had, you know. one curriculum that was super outdated and everything else was created by the teachers. And so it it didn't have that. So then I was looking to my colleagues and trying to figure out what they were doing, but yet I felt like that was cheating somehow (laughs) that I had to do it myself. I had to create this whole thing and I had to do it my way. And that that was, you know, it was shortcutting 
not because I, I don't have a have to do it my way mentality. Normally it was really like, I just want to make sure I'm doing the best, the right, whatever that is. And, and that was the trick is tricky part is that I didn't have a clear metric for that. And um, there were a lot of reasons that the, that the beginning of my career was very challenging um, and some obstacles that I had to face with a principal who got some information about me from another former teacher that was not accurate and then um, kind of judged and believed that person without checking in with me. And so then I was facing all this scrutiny that I had no idea where it was coming from and had to advocate. It was my first like opportunity to advocate for myself professionally that says, you know, wait a minute, you you just, we had a meeting and she like, went through all these things in an evaluation. And I'm like, who are you talking about? I didn't even recognize myself in this evaluation. Like I didn't, and I just was so dumbfounded and um, got some support, went to my union, talked to my other you know, colleagues and said, what do I do with this? Because this is actually an evaluation on my record that isn't about anything I taught. Like, where is this? And I didn't know what to do with that. And so I got some support and and again, this was my second year teaching, I, well, my first full year teaching that this happened because um, I had was in a leave replacement position and then I got hired. So I knew I did something right because I actually <laughs> I got hired for a continuing contract. Right. But it took actually, no, that's not true. It was in my first year that I had to go through this. And that's actually why things turned around for me. And I was able to get hired the next year in a continuing contract was because I went through this advocacy process of standing up for myself, but it made me so mad in the process of it because it was false information. It's like, how could she believe something that she didn't even check? She didn't even check with me and she didn't look at what was right in front of her or walk into my classroom to find out. And so anyway, that was, that happened a number of times, but that was my first, unfortunately. Yeah. I want to give you credit in case you haven't given it to yourself for standing up for yourself, because that's not something that everybody with ADHD can do. Some of us stand up for ourselves too much in kind of an oppositional way, which clearly is not what you did. And some of us, myself as an example, and certainly many clients that I've worked with, just don't stand up. We just kind of like try to keep our head down, even when the bullets are flying at our head. And we think that if we just duck, we'll be okay. And we don't stand up for ourselves. And that leads to more problems later because in not standing up for ourselves, we're not communicating clearly and we're not helping to advocate for ourselves so that our boss or our spouse or whoever has a better understanding of what we're doing and why we are where we are. And that causes problems down the line. So that's really awesome that you stood up for yourself and you used resources you had available to you to right that wrong. Thank you for that. I think that's one of the hardest things. And later in my later experiences, um, you know, I, I kept trying to do that. And yet there were each of these opportunities. Um, my resilience... <laughs> <laughs> dropped. Um, and the fear, the stakes got higher and my fear got higher. And so I, I thank you for that because it is really hard. And I don't feel like later I was able, I did everything I could. I really did. And it still wasn't enough. Uh, so that's the part I've been having to kind of process and deal with over the years is, is knowing that, but, but, um, but thank you. It really did make a huge difference and is actually one of the things, uh, you know, as part of this process in my coach training, one of the activities or processes we, we go through in there personally is creating a rainbow list was what Adka calls a rainbow list. So listing all the things that are um, pivotal or moments in our lives that we're super proud of and, and really can take an uh, ownership in and full responsibility for the outcome and just feel really proud of those. And that's one of them that's on my list. 
So I have given myself credit. I forget about it, but um, at some point I gave myself credit for it. Um, is is to just to know that that was actually, and especially when I didn't know that I was dealing with rejection sensitivity and didn't know that I was dealing with um, ADHD even at that point, and and had a lot of experiences that made that actually really really risky. There was so much fear and worry about not being able to stay with the career that I was in, and wasn't sure like is this right for me because they really in that first meeting, you know, with this, with this principal in my evaluation, it was, there was all these doubts planted of, is this really the right job for you? Is this really the right career for you? Do you have it, what it takes to do this is how that meeting went at first. And, and I realized I was like, well, wait a minute, you know, and I went through and I, I got so mad about it. And I guess that's the benefit of this is it was so out of character and, and there was so much misinformation. If it had been resonating more true, which is what happened later in other situations where my doubts about my ADHD and my challenges with executive function, where there were enough pieces of nuggets of truth that allowed me to believe fully in what they were saying instead of, um, you know, instead of questioning it or doubting it um, and, and challenging it. So I think that was what helped uh, was be able to be able to know that that was just so far off at that point and that I was young and new in the career and super excited and was like, no, this is my dream. This is my passion. And to be able to, uh, to know that that was, uh, wasn't coming from a place of uh, truth that I was able to fight it. And how long did you stay in teaching? Because clearly you've moved into the ADHD sphere. I was in teaching for 13 years. Some of it must have been smooth sailing if you're in there for 13 years. But also you mentioned that your resilience got worn down and it got harder to advocate for yourself. What does that look like? Well, so there were waves. I think, you know, being able to um, to know that um, that there were so many other things that I was really great at, which is the working with the kids and my connection with them and um, and all the other things. I, I still struggled. I mean, all those years were really, really hard, but after that year, at least, um, with that principle, when I stood up for myself, it, she instantly, um, I mean, I came in with a list of rebuttals, you know, that one of my other teacher friends helped me write because an experienced teacher who'd been working in that school and who'd been doing that. And I've been working with her as a mentor, you know, and she's like, no, okay. So like, you know, it's just, you know, she helped me point by point, come in with evidence because she knew that this principal was an evidence-based person. And she had well, she wasn't really because she based these opinions on my teaching from someone else's opinion. And she didn't come in and actually check on any of these things. And so um, I really, it was so helpful to, to refute those one by one and then invite her in. I, I was even more terrified, but I invited her in my classroom after that to look for evidence that I presented. This is who I am in the classroom. This is what I do. And this is, you know, anyway, so it was really important in that point for me to stand into that and step into it. And then for years, um, it went, you know, it was hard work and there was a lot of challenges. Um, but I was able to, to kind of keep it together, but really it was mostly because I was really still focused heavily on my job. Like that was my, I still was allowing at that point. I wasn't, uh, I was single at that point and, and, uh, and young and had, and had the energy to, you know, stay up all night and plan lessons. And I didn't stay up all night, but um, at that point later I did. Um, but I realized that, you know, um, I was doing well, I was doing okay. And, um, and, uh, I think in a lot of ways doing very well and then stamp stepping into other roles. So then I started doing some leadership work and committee work and training and doing other things with other teachers. And so I was finding other pieces of 
my strengths and, and gifts to, to give back that then actually led to things that I'm doing now, which is the experience of teaching and training adults. And, and what's the difference between teaching children and teaching others to teach and to teach others to teach other things. And that's actually what I'm, you know, working on now again. But I think in those later years of my teaching, uh, what started to happen was um, I just got worn down and then I had a lot of other stressors. So then at that point I was newly married for the first time. And in, you know, later in life, I got married in my late twenties, well, later in life for some people. Um, <laughs> um, I, I was like, really that's waited. later in life. Really? <laughs> I was going to say at the time it felt like everybody around me was married. All my friends at that point were married. So I was the late bloomer in that, in my world. And I was very deliberate about it. I really was not rushing into the marriage thing. I, I really worked and waited and thought that this was the right time and the right person and all those things. Um, and so things did not go well. Things started to go downhill pretty quickly. And, um, and so the stressors of that, trying to keep that going. And then I decided to start a side business <laughs> in addition to full-time teaching and newly being married and thought that it was going to be the good thing because it was a, a passion or a hobby-based business. And, you know, thought, oh, well, I'm already, you know, spending all this time and energy doing this. I might as well turn into a business and make money off of it, not knowing and having any idea that that takes a lot of effort and energy also to run a business in addition to teaching. And so it just kind of, yeah, it all sort of, you know, started to blow up. What was the business? I was a consultant for Close to My Heart, which is a um, scrapbooking and stamping company. They still exist. Um, and uh, But now I'm back to being a customer. <laughs> All these years later, um, I went from a customer to a consultant back to a customer again. And uh, yeah, that's where I will stay. Uh, it turned something fun into not fun uh, very quickly, uh, which I've now is a big lesson. I also learned uh, don't know. Well, except for coaching, because that is a, it's been a passion that has become a, a successful business. But <laughs> that was a whole different mug, a different. Yeah, it's not really a hobby. No, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that that journey, you know, when I got through to back to the other part of that story is going back to, you know, the challenge of, you know, the changes in the work too. So it was the changes in my personal life and the stressors and all these additional pieces that made the way I had been living as a teacher, no longer sustainable. Um, because I, I had a life outside of work and to give time to my relationship and give time to, well, and I added the business in there, right. And, and, and home ownership. And, and we had two family members of, of my husband's at that time move in with us. And so there was just lots of reasons. I look back now and realize, oh yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. That's a lot of variables. Yeah. Wow. And one of them is, was a child, you know, so there was, you know, uh, my, my husband's brother and his son um, were living with us and we were remodeling the house and, you know, and I was starting a business and, you know, and, 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 you know, all these things. Yeah. That's a lot of stressors. So um, yeah. So it was a lot. And um I didn't fully understand it all at the time. And I was doing other work. I was also, you know, leading a summer training program for teachers with my father and another, another educator. And so there was just so many things and it just started to all be too much, understandably. And my mental health in that and my physical health started to deteriorate. And um, again, as I look back at now, it's like, oh, well, of course, but at the time <laughs> I didn't see any of it. So when you say, oh, well, of course, right. Sometimes I let that slide with my guests, but I'm not going to let it slide with you because, because you're an ADHD coach, because you're a trainer of ADHD coaches, because you're involved with ADA and ADCA, there's a lot hiding inside of that. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. And I want to, I want to kind of 
pull the string and have that open up so that the listeners can can get a view of that. Probably there's someone listening right now who has 78,000 different stressors going on and they're not sure why. So can you play with that? Oh, but of course, and kind of walk us through why that makes so much sense for someone with ADHD to do, even though it's a terrible plan. First, that it's not even fully conscious, <laughs> first of all, right? So again, even in knowing our own limits and knowing our own capacities for energy and executive function drain and in, in not knowing what all those things cost us in energy and time and focus and you know, all the things. So I talk about executive functioning, you know, as this, this energy, this battery that's finite, you know, we don't realize that this executive functioning battery is a finite battery that gets drained at different rates with different tasks and different stressors. And that they are, you know, we even each day, if we don't get a good night's sleep or we don't rest, we don't eat well, we don't take care of these other things or manage our time and stressors or have passions and joys and fun and release and other things in our life. And then we don't even start the day with a full battery. We start less than a hundred percent and then we forget. So there's several pieces to this, but for many ADHD years, it's about unconsciously keeping busy. So there's some, you know, need for some of us to stay busy for different reasons. Um, and that kind of crosses a little over to therapy, but it's also, you know, kind of a behavioral thing with keeping our brain activated. So there's the ADHD component of dopamine and the, the neurotransmitters that help us, you know, stay activated. And if our schedule is too wide open or we're not busy enough, we actually don't do well at all. And I'm one of those people that I did best when I was in sports in high school and doing school and hang out with my friends. If I was busy enough, I was at my best, but I did not know my own limits or capacities. And this is an example of that where I just kept adding without noticing the uh, compounding effect of those responsibilities. And sometimes that keeping busy is also trying to avoid other stuff. If I'm doing 15 things, I don't have to think about the two things that are causing me a ton of anxiety that I really am feeling badly about, which in your case might've been your school career, right? You might've been like, I love this, but also it feels terrible depending on what lens I'm putting on it. And if I remodel my house and have a side gig and bring in my brother-in-law and his kid, then I don't have to think about the hard parts of school because I'll be thinking about the side gig and I'll be thinking about my brother-in-law and my nephew and that sort of stuff. Potentially, I'm not saying that's definitely the case. I'm just using that as an illustrative example. But that happens for ADHD folks too, right? Yeah, it certainly can because, you know, especially, you know, with tasks or um, it can be big things and it can be little things. I mean, that's a very, a perfect example for a lot of people of of this sort of, you know, I don't remember who coined this phrase, but you know, the procrastivity of, of activities where you're able to, you're, you're doing something productive, but it's in the, it's a procrastinating or avoiding something else and, you know, and paying attention to that. I don't know if that was what was happening in that case, but it is a great example. And it does exist in other areas of our lives often, or even, or even with my example of, you know, lesson planning, I'm seeking and my brain is all lit up from the sparkly excitement of finding the new thing and finding the, the new lesson plan and that that felt easier. That was more dopamine producing. That was super exciting and, and drink, drawing my attention away from the boring, tedious grading assessments and getting them inputted into the you know, data, data collection or data input you know, into the computer or dealing with stressful messages. 
Well, yeah, that's certainly, and I didn't know that's what I was doing, but that's certainly what I was doing in those moments of, oh, this is easier. This feels better. This is more fun. This is more interesting, but not consciously. And I'm glad you brought that up because I can see that in what you described your life being like at the time. I can see, and and again, I'm not saying this is necessarily what happened for you. This is just sort of illustrative. I can see someone being like, oh, well, sure, you can come and move in with us because it makes me feel good to help people. So there's some dopamine in there. I'm helping you out. Come and move in with us. We'll we'll help with this period of challenge for you. Not thinking about the long term of that. Just thinking about like, yeah, like today that feels really great. But three months from now to five years from now, how is that going to feel? Right? Like, what does that mean? And then it's exciting to renovate your home. That is cool. That's full of dopamine until you're living in your house and there's workmen in there all the time and the hammers are banging and the saws are sawing. But conceptually, it's full of dopamine, right? And conceptually having a side gig that's connected to your passion and your hobby, that's really exciting. But the reality of it, the long-term reality of it becomes wearing. And that's another trap that ADHD folks fall into is like, as an idea and in the short term of the idea, this seems really great and it lights me up, like you mentioned. But then comes the drudgery of doing it six months, a year later, and all of a sudden everything is much harder. And you are doing a lot of things like that all at once. And, and realizing that for many of us, it's sort of, it's fine until it's not, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, the challenge of self-awareness in those moments where there, there were clues, there were signs that it was too much and it was becoming too much and it didn't happen all at once. It was kind of, you know, that slow boil that you're not noticing and there's also when I did notice, you know, many of us minimize, right? So it's like, oh, well, no, it's going to be, it'll be fine. It's okay. I've got this. And, and there's some level of, of um, <laughs> denial, honestly, like this lack of real awareness and it's not conscious denial always, but, but really just the self-awareness and the knowledge of our own capacities and our own limits. And that those are actually okay to have, and that, that we, we need to be paying attention to them more. and. Um, yeah, so it's, it is a pattern. It has a, it's a pattern that has repeated a number of times in my life and it's gotten better each time and it's gotten shorter and I've noticed it much sooner. Yeah. And that's how we want our patterns to repeat, right? Especially the negative ones. We want them because they're going to repeat and that's okay. We just want them to repeat smaller each time (laughs) until like their repeats don't really matter that much. They're, they're like a hiccup instead of a roadblock. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned kind of it's fine until it's not and that we get there. Right. So what what happens when it's not fine anymore? Um, it, it really looked like um, first the marriage ending that I it realized that it was the marriage itself was also very unhealthy. And there were lots of signs that it was not what was best for me in, and that I had part of this may becoming sick process my marriage as well. And so realizing that there were some toxic components to my marriage and that my husband had a lot of his own issues that he wasn't dealing with were being taken out on me and I was taking them on and uh, trying to help and trying to solve the problem and try to figure it out and, you know, and, and be compassionate and empathic and help and, you know, and do all of these things that, you know, I, you know, realized I couldn't do both. I couldn't, help him and myself in this crisis or his crisis had become my crisis and I had taken it on. And, and so it just, in addition to all the other things, 
was too much. And so it was the hardest um, and the, the most horrific time of life, but the best, one of the decisions I've ever made, even though it was the most horrific was to end that marriage and to leave. It was long and it was hard, but it was the right thing. And in all of that was when I got diagnosed with ADHD, with major depression and with um, a generalized anxiety disorder, all three together. Then it was the the journey of (laughs) how do I treat this? What do I do? How do I make this better? How do I, you know, deal with this? And so I then was also, you know, as you can imagine in that whole thing of just not only ending a marriage and all of that I had waited so long to do and thought it was the right thing and thought it was the right person and all of these. So there was the grief of that and the failure of that in my mind that I had failed at this, this marriage thing um, that I had put so much importance in and so much hopes in. So there was the grief from that. And then I had to relocate. So I had, I left, I moved out. I had to find my own, my own home. I chose to, you know, to, to move out for myself and, and get my own space again and all of that and move and, you know, restart my life physically as well as emotionally and individually while I was still teaching and and dealing with all these other responsibilities and this other business and this other training program and all of these things. And I just, I got really sick. I got really physically sick. And that was the thing that slowed me down. That was like, well, all right, Renee, you, you don't have a choice now, but to stop your body has told you it's done it's done. And so then it needs a break. And so that forced me first to slow down and stop because I was so sick. I had to, and then I, then I was able to, you know, reach out for other resources. So I started, I found a counselor. Well, first, before that, my, I had got asked my husband to go to counseling together. So we were going to a counselor together and that did not work. And, you know, we tried all these other things again, in this process of trying to make our marriage work. And then I continued to go to counseling by myself because he wasn't willing to continue in that journey. And then in that journey was when I started to discover more about what was going on with me um, and then switched to a different therapist um, because of um, there was another program within my, my employee. That therapy was being covered by my, my employee assistance program at work. And um, there was this big conflict of interest um, with something that came up. And so I decided to find an individual private therapist that was not connected to my employment. And so, uh, so I ended up getting a, a therapist that actually was the one who helped me get diagnosed, who discovered and noticed the things I had been describing and helped me put together the pieces and handed me Kate Kelly and Peggy Ramondo's book. Uh, you know, I'm not, you mean I'm not lazy, stupid, or crazy. And then handed me Ned Hallowell's first book, Driven Distraction. In those two books, you know, she sent me home with for homework and I sobbed and laughed and sobbed and laughed while I read both of those books and thought, oh my God, yeah, this is me. This is what's going on. And so that's where my journey with my ADHD kind of became about me because before it was about my students. And so then shifting it into myself and, and finding the clues that were there, I just didn't know what they were and putting pieces together. And then also dealing with my depression and anxiety in addition to that, which as many of us who, you know, are in the ADHD world know that that's normal, that those other things come into play. And especially when your ADHD is not being managed or treated well, that there can be these residual things of anxiety and depression that are from untreated ADHD. But I also was dealing with them in addition to my ADHD. So complex ADHD, which is more common than we often realize. Yes. Yes. And that was so important for me to also learn and, and, and deal with and know that they were all connected, but 
at that point also needed to be individually given attention and time and treatment. One thing I, I should mention is that I had a full-blown panic attack reading Driven to Distraction. So I'm right there with you on, on when you first learn about ADHD and get a real lens on it as opposed to the its behavioral lens that exists in in education so heavily yeah and it's not just a bullet list of you know behavioral symptoms right? yeah There's exactly just... when you start hearing these stories and getting a better perspective of it i want to play with something that you mentioned when we spoke i don't know a week two weeks ago prior to this interview where you mentioned that once you got your own adhd diagnosis and you started sort of moving towards adca and ada and the professional adhd organizations that earlier as a teacher, when you were doing your research and trying to learn about your students, you came across all of these organizations and resources and then sort of forgot that they existed for, I'm not really sure how long. <laughs> I almost get the feeling it was like a decade, maybe. <laughs> Close to, yeah. That's so perfect to me. Like that's kind of how this story should go, I think, if you're talking to someone who has ADHD. And I like to think of that as planting seeds. It works for people in general, but I think it works especially for ADHD folks where we do something and then like, you know, it'll bear fruit later. I know that's helped me with my ADHD management and my ADHD understanding of like, sometimes I dabble in something and do nothing with it and it just goes away. And sometimes I dabble with something and do nothing with it. And then a year or two later, it turns into something. So instead of feeling guilty about my dabbles, I just kind of assume that I'm, I'm planting seeds. Some of these are going to grow and be useful later, and some of these aren't. And so it sounds like that kind of happened to you with these professional ADHD organizations. And wow, did they grow fruit? They absolutely. I mean, I think when I was going through, and this is another ADHD story, which I think is, you know, part of my journey of, of you know, going, being in crisis and having to move. So then relocating and uh, I had boxed up, you know, so much of my life and then moved in and I was, it, it didn't get better after, you know, I left, <laughs> I left my husband. It didn't get better when I moved. It got worse. I was in crisis for years. Um, honestly, it took me years to get my life back on track. And in that process, there were boxes of stuff that had been packed up and, you know, put away. And then that happened again. Um, you know, I boxed, boxed up parts of my life. And then when I left teaching, boxing up parts of my teaching life, and those were put away and I could only handle so much of that at that time. Well, so recently there's some boxes that were in the back of the storage unit. And I had been over years, I have been pulling out these boxes and sorting and just getting rid of them, actually dealing with them. And one of these boxes was a box of, I didn't know what was in it. You know, it just, I, I had post notes on all the, they all say sort. There's a post note that says sort. So I know what the purpose, what's in the box. I got to do something with it. And when I'm ready, I take that box down and I, I work through it. And I have pro very successful processes and I have the detachment emotionally from all of it now to handle it where I didn't for a long, a lot of years. So anyway, so I'm going through this box and I discover <laughs> An ADCA flyer, um, uh, some notes from an audited class that apparently I sat in on and listened into a session. Uh, I had an ADA, and, and so ADCA, the ADD Coach Academy, and then I had an, um, an ADA, uh, the Attention Deficit Disorder Association flyer from or announcement for some, some of some, I think it was one of their conferences when they were, we were doing their our own conference. And I looked at those and I was instantly so mad at myself <laughs> when I looked at this box. I was like, oh, I found them all these years ago. Why didn't I pursue that? Why didn't that become a thing? 
because I floundered for two years, two and a half years, more actually more than that. If I add it all together, probably four or five years, actually, anyway, it's about about probably eight altogether (laughs) um, until I found coaching. So, you know, but when I looked at that, that flyer, I was like, oh my God, I didn't even remember that I had researched this organization and this business and this school. Why? And I was so mad at myself for not pursuing it. And then I had to give myself an ad even. I was like, well, you know, again, why didn't I go to that conference? What came up? What happened? And it was, I was in crisis. I didn't have the money. (laughs) I didn't have the energy, the time to do it at that time. And I look back on it. And so now looking at that, that flyer, I have to tell myself that honestly, I, I wasn't ready. I couldn't have been ready to do that work back then yet. I wasn't ready yet to do that work. I wasn't ready yet to help other people yet because I hadn't figured it out yet. Not that we have to have it all figured out. That was part of what I, my learning was that, you know, the healing that I have done has been through helping my deepest healing actually. And work has been through helping others because of how I process information and things. I can see myself in other people and then I can apply it to myself with some distance and and healthy applications of, oh, oh, that's what I'm doing. Okay. I don't want to do that anymore. So what do I want to do instead? And so for me, that journey, it's not always that way for everybody, but many ADHD years can really, you know, find themselves and heal and work through working through some of this stuff with other people, as long as you're just a little bit ahead of them in the process to have enough perspective and that you don't get in, you know, not sucked into it. So you have to be healthy enough and distanced enough to not bring your stuff into it. It's not what I mean. I know for me, but not quite the depth component that you're describing, but for me, it gives purpose to my struggles. I kind of hit stuff and it, I hit a rough patch and I'm pretty aggressive about learning the lessons and figuring it out and solving the problem, right? Like I'm, that's kind of how I work. I get very problem solving in it and don't get as caught up in the emotional side of it as much. Obviously that's still there. And there's times when I've been hit very hard emotionally and struggled with that, that I'm not gonna pretend that hasn't happened. But for me, it's sort of been like, I work with clients, came up in the coaching groups two days ago. It comes with my clients all the time where I, I'll tell a story about where I've been, right? And my view is like, part of why I'm so good at my job is because the mistakes that my clients are making, I've already made those mistakes. So I know at least one way to solve it, sometimes more than one way. And the struggles that they're going through, I've been there too a lot of the time, or at least somewhere similar. So I can understand it. And that helps with my healing as much as their healing, right? It helps me go, oh, that happened. And that's a useful thing for me to have gone through because I can do something with it now, as opposed to this terrible thing happened and I just have to sit on it and it just exists and doesn't serve a purpose. It just was hard for me. And it just takes, yeah, it takes some distance and some shame out of it when you, it's the normalizing of our experiences that I think is so important and, and really being able to, to have, I could, infinitely have compassion for others and yet not give it to myself. And so that was a big part of my healing journey and why this was so transformational for me to find these outlets and watch and listen to other people starting and attending my, you know, support groups for as what drew me to, to lead them now is being in one at the beginning of my journey, that was life-changing for me to, to have an in-person, you know, it was, I was lucky enough to have an in-person adult support group in my area and an organization um, that now no longer exists, but was creating so much connection, research and education, training and connection for people in the Seattle area. And so it was just really important to, to get that connection and know that that was actually a pivotal point for my healing was just connecting with other people and seeing 
having shared experiences and knowing and normalizing that this isn't just me, that I'm not broken, that this isn't some strange, weird thing. That's only me. And that's why I diagnosed even the name, the label for me was absolutely important and critical for my healing because I, I could stop blaming myself and taking responsibility for all the things that had gone in, in not a helpful way, responsibility, <laughs> taking all the blame um, for things that really weren't mine to take. Um, and that has been a pattern and that I continue to work through that it's like, you know, this is the deep connection for, you know, rejection, sensitivity, and self-esteem challenges of not understanding what was really mine to own and what wasn't my stuff and what wasn't my thing to take responsibility for, or, you know, connecting myself and separating myself from this almost narcissistic look at the world that I, I must've caused all the things that happened in the world that are negative or anything that anybody's having trouble with. It must be my fault. What did I do wrong? And that was how I internalized and embodied so many things and just held it. And so I think that's where, you know, part of that being able to be like, oh, wait, no, this is a thing. This, it's a big enough thing that it's in this manual that says, you know, there's, there's real criteria and they, you know, (laughs) there's a diagnosis, there's a name for this thing. And it's a big enough thing that it's in this book that takes, you know, years to write. And so it was sort of, it was legitimizing and gave me permission to distance myself enough from it to say, oh, okay, no, actually, okay, this is a thing I can deal with. There are ways that people are dealing with this and there are strategies and tools and things that could make this better. But I suffered for a very, very long time and much longer than most people should have to. And is this normalizing? Is that part of what gets you into coaching and heads you in that direction? Part of it, yes. Uh, The other piece was helping other people not suffer so long and so so painfully as I did. So you got into coaching because you wanted to help. I wanted to help people get help and find their purposes and have, you know, find joy again and feel okay with who they are and learn to love their brain. Um, and, and to know that there is a way to do that with less pain, less suffering, and can be shorter if you, if it should be choose for it to be, if we have the right people. And then you've kind of kept going, right? Cause there's plenty of ADHD coaches out there, but not all of them are sitting on boards and boards of directors and working to, to further the education of other coaches. Is that just more of the same drive to help people? Is there something else in there? It sounds like even when you were in school, you wound up in a leadership position. Yeah. And actually all of those were things that were, came to me and I said, yes, I didn't seek any of those out. And I don't know what that means. I just, I just know that that's the pattern I've noticed. It means that you're good. Oh, thank you. I just, I think that people are finding, you know, I was asked to do those things and people saw things in me and that was part of, that's also been part of my healing journey. And I want to help other people to witness them in a way, you know, to be able to help people see themselves and, 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 and stand in that light and it, that light draws people. And for me, there's been a lot of fear that has kept me from seeking, but I have been able to accept when it's come to me. So at least that's for me, that's the piece that I, I I would like to do more seeking, but, um, right now, and I'm doing that in moments. Um, and then, uh, but other for me, it feels more authentic and more natural. And, and honestly, if I'm being really honest, safer um, <laughs> to let things come to me. And they have, thankfully, but it's also been, I don't want to minimize that too much and, and be self-deprecating in the sense that like in my business, for example, I kept hearing all these ways that you're supposed to start a business. And my coach training, honestly, even was like, this is how you start a business. And this is what you should do. And this is how you should do it. And this is how many clients you probably should start with. And all of it was like, terrifying and felt wrong. 
And I thought that was about my self-confidence. I thought that I was just not confident enough and that I needed to be more confident. And part of it was true. But the other part of of it was this deep intuition that I had quieted and silenced and stopped trusting for years that I have always had this really deep, powerful intuition. And I trusted it for a very long time and for very powerful reasons stopped trusting it, other people's influences and other experiences that made me doubt that intuition um, and it made it unsafe to listen to it. And so then I had to start learning to trust it again. And in my journey through coaching was actually how I started to retrust my intuition again and really, really learn to love and connect with myself probably for the first time, maybe since childhood, uh, very early childhood, even, I don't even know, <laughs> I don't even know if I had it then, but, um, but anyway, so that part of that journey for me is being able to, to connect with how do you just be who you are and let things in when they come instead of, for me, it was about acceptance and letting things in that I had been blocking off and deflecting for lots of years or denying myself. I needed to build my business in the way that worked for me, slow, steady, methodical, safely, because I knew that I needed that to be sustainable because I had done it the other ways in the past. <laughs> All in, dive in and do what other people think I should do and listen to what other people are saying about what works instead of really trusting what I knew to be true for me, even though I didn't know why, just trust it do the thing that works for you and trust that there's a reason why, because I had a better lens. I was making better choices and I knew myself better, but you know, I still, there's a lot of doubt, but I think that was part of it is really, and then helping now with my work, helping other coaches, even, you know, any, any mentoring I've done with coaches is also helping them trust that, you know, what is it, what feels right to you? What feels like the right path for you and trying to just sit in that get quiet and still long enough for that to come through, which is really hard for many of us. And just to pay attention. And just being mindful of time. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? So my business is Added Perspective Coaching and the, the uh, website is uh, addedperspectivecoaching.com. A-D-D-E-D. So I, you know, it's A-D-D in my name. A-D-D-E-D perspectivecoaching.com. And there I talk about um, a little bit of my purpose and why I do what I do. And then I talk about my group coaching and my one-on-one coaching. And I also can be found at ADA and at ADCA. If you're looking for support and resources, uh, that's another place uh, to find me. And also do speaking and and training and I'm teaching for the other piece I didn't say earlier. (laughs) I'm also teaching for Renify. Um, I'm teaching courses for, for Renify, which is a financial education organization for ADHDers. So you can find me over there as well. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.